Bibles, if you will, this morning and open up to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. Daniel, chapter 6, and uh, keep your place there, and uh, we'll look at a couple of passages as well. You know, Super Bowl commercials are generally considered the most creative and the most uh, carefully designed, and that's because those who purchase time for commercial spots usually pay millions for just a 30-second spot, so they want to make sure it captures the attention of the viewer. And one of my favorites occurred several years ago, and it uh, is about, a, about compromise. And uh, there's a couple, and they show up uh, looking for a pet. They want to buy a pet, and they can't decide on which uh, breed uh, they want to purchase. And that's where things get interesting when the salesman suddenly suggests, why not breed a Chihuahua and a Doberman? And so they take the idea to heart, and the horror begins with the, the breeding of those two, the Chihuahua and the Doberman, and it produces an aggressive Doberwawa. And in the commercial, the, uh, this little tiny terror begins to take over the world. And the commercial finally ends after all the terror that has occurred as a result of this crossbred dog with this statement from Audi, the car manufacturer, that says, compromise scares us too. Well, perhaps no two words capture the spirit of the age we're living in like the words tolerance and compromise. Now, not all compromise is bad. But there are some lines that must never be crossed. There are some things that must never be crossbred, if you will. Uh, and there are some things that must never be compromised, like the essentials of our doctrine, our belief, and God's truth. They must never be compromised. These must never be crossbred. They must never be confused with the ideas of the world. If you do, it's like ending up crossing a Chihuahua and a Doberman. It's not going to end well if you do so. And that's what I want to talk about with you today, is why compromise is never, with God's truth is never acceptable. Now sooner or later, you're going to have to decide where you will draw a line in the sand of your life. A line that represents where you will not bend and where you will not compromise. Frankly, I think we're rapidly approaching an era in history where a dividing line uh, for the culture is forming, where a dividing line in the family is approaching, where a dividing line in academics is approaching, where a, a dividing line in the church of Jesus Christ is approaching. And on which side of that line we stand will determine uh, who we are, and uh, who belongs to God. Maybe you remember the story in Exodus chapter 32. You remember when Moses was up on the mountain, and Moses came down from the mountain only to discover that the people had constructed their own idol. And uh, uh, Moses asked Aaron, he says, what have you done? What have you allowed to do, uh, to, th why have you allowed this to happen? And Aaron's response, well, just listen to what he says in chapter 32, he says, For they said to me, that's Aaron speaking to Moses, The people said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Well, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and listened to this line from Aaron, And out came this calf. I just threw it in the fire and the calf popped out. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, listen to that, they had broken loose, that meant from all boundaries, all rules. They had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Who is on the Lord's side? It is still a question appropriate for the day, isn't it? Who is on the Lord's side? Charles Spurgeon said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. A.W. Tozer said, 
we are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. Today, there's a growing urgency, I believe, for men and for women to stand for truth. And it's going to only intensify. Uh, For men and women to declare that they are on the Lord's side and refuse to give up God's Word for the world's ideas. And on this Father's Day, what I want to do is I want to issue a clarion call to all of us, but particularly to men, to be men of God in a world full of compromise. And to help you with that, I want us to look at one of the great characters of the Bible, and I want us to learn from him how to stand with grace and with strength when every, everyone else around is compromising. If you're physically able to do so, stand with me this morning as we read this story. The story, well, a part of the story of Daniel, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be uh, throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. And then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because Uh, An excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find no ground uh, for he uh, for uh, or complaint or, or any fault because he was faithful. Nor error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, "Shall." Uh, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in, in, in connection with the law of his God. And then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the perfects and the satraps, satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. And then these men came by agreement, and they found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes makes petitions to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes of the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Father, thank you for men like Daniel. Help us to be these men. Help us, Father, to know where to draw the lines. And Father, to make a difference in this age that you've allowed us to live. Father, speak to us all today from your word Challenge us, Father. Confront us. Convict us of any wickedness or wicked way. And transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. It's a familiar story, right? I mean, uh, there are few people, uh, even people outside the church know the story of Daniel. But it's sometimes told, now listen, it's sometimes told like a childhood fairy tale, isn't it? It's presented sometimes like a a cartoon drama almost, where all is well that ends well. And because of that, oftentimes I think the seriousness of the message of this story is lost because just because we say, well, it uh, it all ended well. But but we have to see more than just Daniel's predicament and, and, and his deliverance. We have to understand and we have to learn from the principles that created Daniel's dilemma to start with. And this story uh, is just as relevant today as it was when it occurred. And it's helpful because it helps us understand how to live in an age just like Daniel's age, an age of compromise on the things of God. 
So this morning, I want to show you three things that I believe this story teaches us. The first is this, found in chapter 1. If you will, I want you to, to turn over to chapter 1. I'm going to read just a couple of verses there. But here's the first thing that this whole story of Daniel uh, teaches us. Number one, it teaches that we must not be compromised by the false ideas of the world. We must not be compromised by the false ideas of the world. Look at uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 and following. The king assigned them these there are four guys, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It tells their different names and how they were changed from their Hebrew names to their Persian names. And it says in verse 5, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. They're in the royal academy. This is pretty heady stuff. And they're being trained to lead the nation. And uh, in that training process, they are given the finest foods, at least by the world standards of the age. But they weren't the foods that Daniel was accustomed to eating. He ate uh, a, a biblical menu, you might say. And so look at verse 8. This was presented to him. It says in verse 8, but Daniel resolved, and that's an important word, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. The key idea here is that Daniel resolved. He resolved. He said, I'm not going to allow the menu of the world to affect the menu of God. Um, the very first thing that we discover about Daniel is that even though he and his friends were in captivity, they were from Judah, they were in Babylon, they were in captivity, and yet uh, they would not be compromised by the false ideas that the world had a better way. I mean, think about this. This is the king, and it's his menu. It's his diet. He said, this, this is what the king eats. You're going to get to eat like the king eats. And Daniel says, no, we eat like God told us to eat. And the principle is that no matter how good the world said their way was, Daniel said, we trust in the way of God. And so he would not defile himself. God had declared some meats unclean. And Daniel valued his relationship with God so much that he was willing, listen, to be expelled from the king's royal academy if need be. And here's the interesting part. The, king, the food uh, from the king's table was considered the very best fare you could eat. Everybody wanted to eat the food that the king ate. But it wasn't God's way. And the point is that there are sometimes and some things that come your way which appear to be good and they appear to be right by the world standard, and they even may be harmless in their appearance. But if you disregard God's instructions, and you, if you will, pun intended, and you bite on the false notions of the world that it's okay to compromise here, guess what you can do? You set in motion a progression of more and more and more and more. Psychologists often use a process called systematic desensitization or graduated exposure therapy. And they use that to help people overcome fears and anxieties and things that they're uncomfortable with. It was developed by a South African psychiatrist, Joseph Walpe, in the 1950s. And the process of systematic desensitization occurs in three steps. The first step is the identification of whatever is causing the discomfort or fear. You identify what it is. What, what am I afraid of? What's causing me to be anxious? The second step is, is learning to use techniques to relax or to cope. All right? And then the third step is for the person to apply these techniques toward the fear or the anxiety or the belief that has caused the, uh, them so much discomfort. In other words, uh, here's the whole therapy and the process is to uh, continually to expose a person uh, to the coping measures that will desensitize them to the things that previously disturbed them or made them feel uncomfortable. Does that make sense? 
So you just gradually expose them, expose them, expose them until it no longer affects them. You help them learn to cope through gradual exposure. Now, another illustration of it, perhaps you heard, is the frog in the kettle. You ever heard that illustration? The frog boiling slowly as you turn the heat up. Well, that's the whole idea of this desensitization therapy that is often used. What false ideas and messages from the world, may I ask you, no longer make you uncomfortable today? What false ideas propagated by the world that you are living in have you just slowly, gradually swallowed and swallowed and swallowed until the shock is no longer there? What do you put in your mind that no longer bothers you? What do you view with your eyes that no longer bothers you? What do you say with your mouth that no longer bothers you? All of that which now seems normal that in the past would have never been tolerated in your life you see every time you swallow the false ideas of the world it becomes easier and easier to compromise on the next matter and the next matter do you know where the compromise begins it doesn't begin in the action it begins in the heart it begins in the mind don't miss this the bible says that that Daniel resolved. That means he made the decision before the action. He resolved. Listen, compromise begins in our hearts. It begins in our minds, not with our actions. Our actions are a reflection of a compromise that has already occurred in in our hearts and in our heads. Our actions are a, 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 a demonstration of what we've already decided. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs, guard your heart above all else, for it's the source of life. Friends, don't miss this. Your actions are a revelation of your beliefs. Your actions are a revelation of the decisions or the resolve or lack thereof that you've made in your heart and your head before you ever act. And if you're not going to be compromised by the false ideas of the world, then like Daniel, listen, the first thing you must do is resolve in your heart where the line is. I will not cross this line. That's the first thing that you must do, not to compromise the truths of God. The second thing that Daniel, the story of Daniel teaches us is that we must not collapse at the false indictments of the world. We must not collapse at the false indictments of the world. Look at verse 7, back in chapter 6, it says, All the high officials of the kingdoms and the perfects and satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, an indictment, an indictment of all of those who would, would not come along with the idea of, uh, uh, of the world. And Daniel had already resolved. Remember, he wouldn't eat the king's food, but I'll tell you something else Daniel had resolved, that he wouldn't bow and worship any, uh, anyone but God, even if it mean, meant being indicted by the false judgments of the world. And here's what's really going on. In verse 4 that we read in this passage, um, the locals were upset at Daniel. You know why? Because God had favored Daniel for being a faithful man, and because God had favored him The king was promoting him. He was moving him up, and he was about to make him uh, second in command over the whole uh, 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 Medo-Persian empire. And they didn't like it. He was from Judah. He wasn't even one of them. And here he was. God was elevating him. They didn't know that. They just knew the king liked him, and so they had to to, to do it. There's jealousy going on. There's political conspiracy going on. And so what did they do? They played to the king's ego. They came to the king and they said, King, you know, you're the greatest king ever. And the king wanted to believe that. And so he said, listen, we just want to honor you. Let's take 30 days to honor you, king. You're so good. Here's what let's do. Let's, uh, let's build an image to you. And let's uh, then, uh, for 30 days, if you will, make a ruling according to the Medes and the Persians. And once a law was made uh, uh, accordingly, it could not be revoked. And so let's make a, a law that for the next 30 days, no one prays to any God but you. 
And the king's ego said, I like that. And so he stamped and approved a document that declared that anyone who prayed to any god uh, other than praying to the king for 30 days would be thrown into the lion's den. They not only said they would be indicted, they said, and here's the consequence. And, um, and they knew that Daniel wouldn't do it. They, they, they knew he wouldn't do it. So they said, this is how we will take Daniel down. Now, I, I want you to get a couple of things. Uh, let me give a couple of observations uh, uh, as to what's going on here. Uh, first, I would uh, tell you that Daniel was not purposely trying to rebel. He, he wouldn't do it. They knew he wouldn't do it. But he's not purposely trying to rebel, okay? That's important to understand. He wasn't trying to show up the king. He wasn't trying to defy the law. He was merely continuing in the pattern of faith and worship that had characterized his life and his faith. And as believers, you and I... We must stand on the truth of God, but never for the sheer purpose of showing up someone. Does that make sense? He, he wasn't trying to, to agitate the king. We stand on truth not to embarrass others, but because it's truth. We, we stand on the truth of God because it's the truth of God, not to, as an attempt to embarrass someone. The leader of the Reformation, Martin Luther, in 1521, was asked by popes and the emperor to recant his biblical position against the corruption of the popes, and his stated response is legendary. He said this, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And you might argue today that the Western church is where it is today because he took that stand. He drew that line in the sand. And he wasn't purposely trying to defy the, the emperors and the popes. But he said, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Daniel understood the law of God. And the law of God, he understood, was now being asked to uh, uh, be dismissed in favor of the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so he, he wasn't purposely trying to rebel. This was a conspiracy. This was a setup. There's only one person, however, he got right that we bow to. Every other image that demands worship is false. Daniel, though loyal to the king, the king loved him. He was loyal to the king. Daniel knew where to draw the line. I'm going to ask you this morning, do you? Do you know where to draw the line in your life? And then there's a, another observation I would give you. Drawing the line in the sand that you will not compromise may also bring a high price. We're often told today that if you, if you do the right thing for God, then God will just make everything work out. And in this story, there is a, a happy ending, but there's also Hebrews, the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews, where it didn't work out so well for those people. Well, it did work out fine for them. But not in the worldly sense, it didn't. And we have to understand that drawing a line in the sand uh, that, uh, regarding where you will not uh, compromise may, may exact a price. And, and see, this document, Daniel already knew what the price was. The document already said, if you don't do this, you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. That was stated up front. He knew that he would be thrown into the lion's den. That was not his goal, by the way. And in an anti-God world and culture that we're living in, there are sometimes consequences for standing for God. But listen, there always have been. Read history. There have always been consequences for standing for God. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying the story of Esther, Esther in my pastor's Bible study. And it is a story that makes the point that, that it's okay to fit in, it's okay to do good, there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes the world may not give you an easy option. That was the case for Esther, it was the case for Daniel, it was the case for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Sometimes the world will try and force you to adopt and to adapt to ideas and standards that go against God's clearly stated word and standards. That's what's going on here. And there may well come a time 
where you will have to stand up for God. There may well come a time when it is obvious that you are not of the world. And it may become obvious that despite identification, you are not the same as the person that sits next to you. You see, there are limits to our engagement with the world. In Esther, there is this plot that has been formed against the Jews similar to this sort of thing. It's a power play. It's a political uh, conspiracy. And the plot is to destroy the Jews. And Mordecai persuades Esther to intervene. Esther is the queen. And Esther asks to to speak to Mordecai, her cousin, for for help as to how she should should do this because she's anxious for her own life. She's nervous. She knows that if she goes in before the king and he hasn't summoned her, that it's a death sentence. And what we see is a line. There's a line that's drawn in that story. Just like in this story, there's a line that can't be crossed. There's always a line that you cannot cross. And so Esther says this. She says, Mordecai Mordecai did not bow, or the scripture says, Mordecai did not bow, bow down and pay homage. All that was asked of Mordecai, all that was asked was that he bow down and worship a man It could have been the easiest thing in the world to do. Think about it. He could have just bowed down to Haman and crossed his fingers behind his back and said, I'm not really bowing down. I'm bowing down outwardly, but my heart is is resisted. He could have done all of that. Everything would have been fine. He could have just simply fake worship, but he said, no, there's only one person I worship. And sometimes you do have to stand up for what you believe in. In your work world, in your school world, in your family world, sometimes you have to do what Mordecai did. You have to say, I will not bow to to anything but God. You really do. You do. You really do. Sometimes you have to do that. And then, of course, Esther later on, she, has, she literally puts her neck on the line. She, she says, so I'll go in before the king, and if I perish, I perish. It's like when Peter and John said to the Jewish authorities, we must obey God rather than, than man. It's like when Jesus said in Mark 12, 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Yes, we must give to the world the things that belong to this world. But listen, friends, there are times when God will demand something of us. And I would add, there are some lines that we must draw and not cross. And there are some hills, there are some hills to die on. And that's why Esther would say, I'll go into the king. If I perish, I perish. There are some things that may cost you. There are some lion dens that you may be thrown into. And if you perish, you perish. Now, listen, don't get thrown into a lion's den because of your ignorance. Don't get thrown into the lion's den because... You're dumb. I mean, you make a dumb decision. Uh, Don't make it your mission to get thrown into a lion's den. There's nothing noble about trying to be thrown into a lion's den. They won't be writing a story about you. But if it happens, let it be because like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Mordecai and Esther, let it be because you refuse to bow down to the images of the world and that there are lines that you will not cross. But then last and third, we learn from the story of Daniel that we must not condescend to the false idols of the world. Verse 10 in your Bible, notice when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. Look, at, look He knew it had been signed. He didn't say, well, I, I went to pray today, but I didn't realize they'd already signed the document. He knew. When, when he found out they'd signed it, he went uh, to his house in, in his prayer area, in his upper chamber, uh, where the windows were opened, and he got down on his knees, and he prayed three times during the day. He did exactly what they were hoping he would do so they could use it against him. But notice he bent his knees for only one person. And notice that he offered a prayer of thanks. Did you notice that? He offered a prayer of thanks. 
This is a man who knew the consequences of his devotion to God. He knew what the cost of doing that was. He knew that. He's headed for the lion's den, and yet, yet he's giving thanks to God. Why could Daniel do that? And how can you build a faith like that? And we need men like that. Amen? We need men that will stand in this culture and say, I'm not going to bow to any God but Jehovah God. I'm not going to, there are lines in the sand. I didn't draw them, you drew them when you violated God's truth. And I'm not stepping across those lines. And I'm not going to crossbreed them with the ideas of Christianity and the world. Let's just compromise what God says with what the world's ideas are and see if we can create some horrible hybrid. I'm not crossing a line. We need men to do that. We need Esther's to do that. But why, why would Daniel do that? I, let me give you three, three things that I close with as to, to why Daniel was able to do that. Number one, because he was a man of character. Daniel was a man of character. Look at verse 4. It says, um, but they could, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. That means he was a man of character. I love that. They couldn't find any fault with him. They tried. They tried. They tried everything they knew, and they couldn't. Why? Because of his faithfulness to God and to God's way. He was a man of character. Daniel lived by the rules of God when it was easy to live by them and when it was difficult. And he proves that. When it was easy, things were great. He lived by uh, the rules of God. And by the way, everybody knew his character because they knew who he followed. And when it was easy... And then when it was difficult, when he was tested, he was ready. He was ready, and God was with him. Why? Because he was a man of faithfulness and character. It was character that had been forged in his life, in in captivity. Uh, And character is forged often, most often, in the fires. Character is cultivated by being faithful. Even when compromise offers an easy path or an easy way out, character remains faithful to truth. And by the way, when the lion's den came, Daniel was prepared by all of these years of obeying and walking with God. I say that to say character doesn't come quickly. Yeah, character doesn't come quickly. I wish it did. Don't you? Don't you wish you could, you could uh, just say, okay, I'm going to develop a, a godly character tomorrow. And it would just happen. Character doesn't come quickly. And it didn't for Daniel. This was years of him following God, walking with God, living the truth. And it, it, it fused a godly character in him so that when the, when the lion's den came, Daniel didn't bow. Because he was a man of character. A second observation about Daniel is that he was a man of commitment. Notice what they said about him unless in verse 5, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. It said, in other words, we can't find any fault in him, so we're going to have to figure out where could we trip him up. And they said, only in connection to his God. So we'll pass a law that will force him to have to defy his devotion to his God. And he won't do that, and that'll play perfectly into our hands. Daniel was a man of commitment, and they knew that. Not just character, but commitment. His enemies knew that he would not bend in his commitment to seek God, in his commitment to serve God, and in his commitment to obey God above everything else. This, you see, was a line in the sand for Daniel. And he wouldn't violate his commitment to God uh, to compromise and be accepted in the world and in the face of opposition. The New York Times reported on a major study that tracked 1,761 people who got married and stayed married over the course of 15 years. And the article reported that newlyweds enjoy a big happiness boost that lasts, on average, for just two years. Two years. You know, that's what they call the honeymoon period, right? And they get a boost, a happiness boost, after they get married. And it lasts about two years. And then the special joy wears off and they're back where they started, at least in terms of happiness. 
Christian author Gary Thomas illustrated the findings of that study and stated that essentially the glue of long-term relationships is not the continual feelings of romanticism or physical chemistry or infatuation. The conclusion was rather that long-term relationships seem to move toward feelings of warmth and dependability and then he adds God simply did not design our brains to sustain lifelong infatuation. Have you ever noticed that some people connect to God, they connect to the church, and they seem so excited by it all, so involved, they appear to be uh, plugged in, and then about as quickly as it started, after a couple of years, they suddenly began to, to drop out. They began to lose interest. Uh, some vanished completely. Why? They were infatuated with God. They weren't in love with God. You see, you can't sustain a relationship with God on infatuation. I think there are too many Christians uh, that are no longer uh, in love with God. They, they are infatuated by God, but that hasn't sustained them. They've never moved their relationship with Him toward warmth and dependence. Daniel's commitment to God was based on uh, uh, depth and time and warmth and commitment and dependence. And so when it was tested, guess what? It stood. You know why some marriages are in trouble? They've confused infatuation with commitment. Do you know why, listen, some churches are in trouble? Because the believers have confused infatuation with God with commitment to God. And so when the feeling is not there, there's no commitment. Listen, you'll never know when to draw a line in the sand like Daniel if you are merely infatuated with God instead of committed to God. God, I am committed. I'm committed beyond my feelings. Uh, beyond, Father, I, 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 the sensations. God, I'm committed. I believe your truth to the point that I've committed myself to it. When I feel good about it and when I, when I don't, I'm committed. Paul said this, he told young Timothy, he said, preach the word, preach it in season and out of season. Do you know what that means? It means preach it when it's popular and when it's unpopular. When people want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. You remember when Jesus uh, came into the... Uh, the city, the Passion Week. You remember what the people were doing? Y'all remember what they were doing? They put the palm leaves down. What were they doing? Somebody tell me what they were doing. Y'all wait. They were praising Him, weren't they? Hosanna to the highest. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what they were saying as He was coming in on the donkey into the, the holy city in the Passion Week. Do you know those were the same people that denied Him and cursed at Him when He was on the cross? They're the same people. The same people, listen, that when he was being tried, the mob began to scream, crucify him. These are the same people that had been praising him. You know what? Their infatuation was over. That's how, happen it, how quick it can happen. Friend, you and I are to stand on the truth of God, not based on our feelings, but based on the facts that it is God's truth delivered to us. That's why Jude said, contend for the faith once and all delivered to the saints. Daniel was a man of character and a man of commitment. And so he could draw the line and say, this is the line. No matter if there's a cost. If I lose my, my high position in the kingdom, if it throws me in the lion's den, I'll stand here. We need men and we need women today that are willing to say, my commitment trumps even potential consequences. Because, dear friend, unless something changes, unless there's a move of God, I want to tell you, you're going to be tested. Your faith is going to be tested. I want you to know as your shepherd that I've told you, you are going to be tested. There's every evidence around us that we are going to be tested. And we're going to have to decide who's on the Lord's side. And we're going to have to draw the line. Unfortunately, the line is being drawn for us. Let me rephrase that. But I want you to know, and I love you too much not to tell you, you're going to be tested. 
And only, only a life of character and commitment. And the third thing, Daniel was a man of conviction. Those are the things that will, those are the things that the refining fire will reveal about us. In verses 10 to 13, they're complaining after they recognize that Daniel had, uh, had done exactly what they thought he would do, that he had gone, he had prayed to his God, they reported it to the king, and here's what they said in verses 10 to 13, Daniel pays no attention to you. Now, character reflects who you, you really are, and commitment reflects... Um, what you believe. But conviction is the demonstration of what you believe. It, it, it is the demonstration of what you believe. Daniel understood what the consequences of his convictions were, and yet he refused to bend. Tragically, today we're living in an age that lacks conviction. An age that is characterized by moral relativism. An, an age that teaches that we are to tolerate everything no matter what its moral value is. We're to tolerate it. Unless, of course, it's Christianity. Dr. Stephen L. Anderson, a professor in Ontario, Canada, had what he called a moment of startling clarity. He was teaching a section on ethics in his senior philosophy class. And he needed an attention getter, he said. So he needed something to shock his students and to force them to, to take an ethical stand. And he hoped that this would at least form a baseline from which the, the class could evaluate other ethical decisions. And so here's how he explained what happened next. Listen to this. I decided to open a by simply displaying, without comment, the photo of Bibi Aisha. Aisha was an Afghani teenager who was forced into an abusive marriage with a Taliban fighter who abused her and made her sleep and live with his animals. When she attempted to flee, her family caught her. They hacked off her nose and her ears and left her for dead in the mountains. She was saved by a nearby American hospital. He said, I, I felt quite sure that my students, seeing the suffering of this poor girl of their own age, would have a clear ethical reaction. He says, the picture's horrific. Aisha's beautiful eyes stare hauntingly back at you above the mangled hole that once was her nose. In fact, it's so bad, some of my students could not even raise their eyes to look at it. I could see that they were experiencing deep emotions, but I was not prepared for their reaction. I had expected a strong aversion, but that's not what I got. Instead, they became confused. They seemed not to know what to think. They spoke timidly, afraid to make any moral judgment at all. They were unwilling to criticize any situation originating in a different culture. They said things like this, well, we might not like that, but maybe over there it's okay. Another student said, well, it's just wrong to judge other cultures. And I wondered, he said, how can kids who have been so thoroughly basted in the language of minority rights be so numb to clear moral offense? But no matter how I prodded, they did not leave their non-judgmental position. And I left the class shaking my head. It seemed clear to me that for some students, clearly not all of them, but for some students, the lesson of character education initiatives is that we must accept all things at all cost. And for these students, the overriding message is never judge, never criticize, never take a position. How sad. How sad, right? How scary, right? But it's not just students. 
It's adults. It's academics. It's media. It's pastors. And it's churches that have compromised and given up godly and moral convictions out of fear of being labeled and vilified and ostracized by the culture. Listen, friend, no compromise means that there are some things that you are going to have to draw a line in the sand about. It's not going to feel good sometimes. It's not going to be popular sometimes. But it's about standing. It's about speaking. And it's about living with godly conviction. Today, more than ever before, men... We need some new Daniels. We need some new Daniels. And ladies, more than ever before, we need some new Esthers. We need some people, some believers that are renewed and have character and commitment and conviction to the truth. And who say no compromise. No, no compromise. There are lines that I will not cross because of my commitment, my character, and my conviction to the truth of God. I ask you as I close, men, will you, will you be a Daniel? I'm not talking to, I, look, I'm talking to people that are watching on live stream and television and all that, but I'm talking right now, today, those, whoever's listening to my voice, I want to ask you, men, will you say today, I will be a Daniel? I will be a Daniel. Regardless, is there consequences? I'll be a Daniel. If there are no consequences, I'll be a Daniel. Would you answer that question this morning? Ladies, will you be an Esther? Will you be an Esther? Will you say today, I will not compromise. And if I perish, I perish. But it will be because I will not bow to any compromised idea of the world that trumps the truth of God. I will not. I will not. I will not compromise. Father, help us to be men and women of character and commitment and conviction. Lord, we pray for your move across this land. But Lord, we, we know that you move through people. Would you make us those people that you move through? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Whether you're in this live audience or watching on live stream. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can't be a Daniel or an Esther because it begins with a relationship with God. And Jesus Christ is the means by which you can have that relationship. Would you call on Him? The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right now, in this room, in your room, call on Him. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm calling out to you. Thank you for loving me. I know I'm a sinner, but you love me in spite of my sin, and you died for my sin, and I thank you, and I ask you now to come into my life, forgive me, and be my Lord and Savior. Make me a Daniel, make me an Esther for you. In this place this morning, maybe 
Maybe you need to tell God right now, God, I'll be a Daniel. I'm not where I'm supposed to be, God. I have wandered away from you. I have fallen away from you. I have drifted away from you. My heart has grown cold and hard enough. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, I'll tell you right now, I commit myself to you. I'll be a Daniel. I'll be an Esther. I'll I'll be more than just infatuated, God. I'll be committed. Father, let me make a difference. Just maybe, it might be I just need to be a Daniel in my home or an Esther in the home or in my work environment, wherever it is, God. But I'll be a Daniel. I'll be an Esther. And God, use me to make a difference in those around. Father, would you hear these prayers this morning? I know you do. You've already told us you would. Thank you. Father, would you cause us, like Daniel, to walk out of this place resolved in our hearts to be your people. No compromise. No cross lines. For your name's sake and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Heads are bowed and eyes closed as you stand. Nobody looking about. The choir's going to lead us in an invitation. I'm here at the front. Brother Bob and Brother Chuck are here as well in the aisles. And I want to invite you to do one of two things. Maybe this is a good day to hit a knee on the altar. The altar's open. Maybe this is a time. Lord, help us to be Daniels. Come, some, some of you come and pray. Lord, help us be Daniels. Lord, help us be Esther's. There may be things going on in your family. You've got, you need wisdom. Come and pray. And bent knee before God. There may be some in this place and you've got decisions to make. And you don't know what decision to make. Come and, and seek Him. There may be those of you who've joined us in this live audience that prayed that prayer this morning to trust Christ as your Savior. Would you slip out? Would you come to one of us, Bob or Chuck or myself down here? Would you come and would you say, I prayed that prayer. I want to become a child of God. Would you come? You may be here and say, you know what? I, I am a child of God, but I'm coming this morning because I need, a, I need a family of God to belong to. I'd like to join this church. Balcony, ground floors. We begin to sing. Slip out right now and you come on. Are you ready? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You come on right now. Come on, pray, come on, decision, whatever it is, you come right now.